Hi, this is Michael Lemieux, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 98 of IP Fridays. I'm Ken Suzanne, your co-host of the IP Fridays podcast. Our guest today is Michael Lemieux, and we will be talking about strategies on dealing with trade secret theft. Before we get to this segment of the podcast, let's turn our attention to China and issues relating to conducting e-commerce there. Has the Wild West of Chinese e-commerce come to an end? Last summer, the People's Republic of China passed an e-commerce law to control the chaos of Internet sales. Defining both e-commerce and e-commerce operators as broadly as possible, this law will affect practically any party doing business over the Internet in China. Spectators hope that the law will address the persistent problem of web-based intellectual property theft. The law is good news for American intellectual property holders, though enforcement requires vigilance. In the simplest sense, the law states that any e-commerce platform operator that knows or should have known of IP infringement must take remedial measures. Platform operators that fail to take remedial measures could be held jointly and severally liable with the infringer. Currently, the burden is on the IP holders to police for infringement. In reality, though, the system is more complicated. Structurally, it resembles what American attorneys would call a burden-shifting framework. The intellectual property owner must notify the platform of suspected infringement and provide proof thereof. Then, the platform must take remedial measures by deleting the content, blocking the infringer, or otherwise terminating the infringer from the space. The alleged infringer must then refute the claim with their own evidence sent to the platform. If the conflict escalates, the IP owner may file a lawsuit with the appropriate Chinese authorities. Otherwise, upon a showing of non-infringement, the platform operator may resume normal procedures. Fines for non-compliant platforms range from roughly $7,000 to $290,000. But IP rights holders should not be too quick on the draw. Bad faith, false accusations of infringement, can lead to civil liability, including punitive damages. Malicious accusations can even cost twice the damages suffered by the e-commerce operators. In the wake of this law's passage, many questions remain. What is the standard for knowledge imputed to web platforms? How will Chinese courts rule when IP holders file complaints? When is an accusation more likely to be considered malicious? And will IP rights holders always be responsible for policing the Internet? Regardless of how these issues resolve, two things are certain. One, IP rights holders should maintain vigilance on the web. And two, China's e-commerce markets will continue to grow. After all, China's largest online retailer, JD.com, is bested only by Amazon and Alphabet Inc. for highest tech company revenue in the world.
Now let's turn our attention to the interview with Michael Lemieux. My guest today on IP Fridays is Michael Lemieux, and our topic for discussion is trade secret theft. Michael is an experienced compliance and investigations leader on issues involving intellectual property rights, corruption, financial crime, antitrust, domestic terrorism, tribal gaming, and major theft. Michael serves as a fellow at ACAP Center, which is the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection, located in East Lansing, Michigan. At ACAP, Michael advises on complex global issues related to anti-counterfeiting and product protection. Michael has also managed the Federal Bureau of Investigation's IPR and Internet Fraud Programs at the National IPR Coordination Center. Over a 20-year period, Michael worked within two FBI field offices and at two FBI headquarters divisions. Welcome, Michael, to IP Fridays. Great. Thank you, Ken. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Michael, let's uh, jump right in. Given your work at the National Intellectual Property Rights Center and management of the FBI's theft of trade secrets programs, are there some typical challenges or patterns you've seen in theft of trade secret cases that rights owners can look for uh, when trying to protect their own intellectual property? Uh, there sure are, Ken, and I, I think that was one of the real values of, of managing that program over the period of time that I did. It was a chance to see a wide range of, of federal theft of trade secret cases, um, at least on the criminal side for sure, but it, it really gives you really kind of an overview, and my hope is that there are, are some issues that, uh, that the brand owners and the rights owners can learn um, and, and try to prepare for in the future. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one of the most compelling things that I've seen in the last few years uh, was a statistical analysis of uh, theft of trade secret incidents in the, in the federal court venue really over the last 50 years. Um, and they found that approximately 85% of all theft of trade secret incidents were perpetrated by someone, whether it's an entity or individual, but someone known to the trade secret owner. And I think that's an important point for rights owners to keep in mind, um, it not only as, a, as an insider threat per se, but just for the fact that these are individuals and organizations that are close to you already. And I think that brings up some uh, very unique challenges. Um, one of the things that it really, I, I think, emphasizes the importance of is uh, a very thorough and proper backgrounding of employees and due diligence of those companies that you're engaged with. Uh, because again, you know, eight to nine out of every 10 of the incidents will more than likely be associated with someone known to you already. Mm-hmm. Um, we have found this to be I think particularly true of situations with merger and acquisition. Um, and you have to think about it in the sense of, of a company actually bringing in a whole new group of employees. And that has its own challenges as well, uh, especially when you consider those employees may not have the same loyalty or the same minds company, uh, thus increasing the risk. Sure. 
In connection with the due diligence you talked about, are there any particular things that employers should be doing or looking out for? Well, I think all of the all of the organizations today, or at least most, are really doing a good job with some of the initial hire screening, uh, the initial due diligence for for new mergers and acquisitions, and so really some of the the initial phases of that are are really well covered, um, and I think that's a great thing. But one of the things that I think needs to be considered for some of the organizations, and especially for some of those employees or groups of employees who have access to the most sensitive IP assets for the company, mm-hmm. uh, it should be considered uh, a good opportunity for maybe some type of ongoing uh, screening or periodic backgrounding. You know, the government has done that for many years in terms of periodic backgrounds looking for uh, certain behaviors and, and insider threats. And for those employees in an organization with access to the, the crown jewels, if you will, of an organization's IP assets, that may be something that is, uh, that is certainly, um, I think, warranted in some of those, those cases. The other thing that uh, I think some of the cases that I've seen over the years um, would certainly would reveal is, is the, the need to, to, to pay particular attention um, to those, uh, those individuals, those employees that are working very closely um, with other partners in business that may actually have an interest in the organization's most sensitive IP or their, their trade secrets. Um, I think one of the things as well that's really um, on the one side it's it's a positive we have a an advantage an advantage of growing technology in the workplace and it's certainly making our jobs easier uh, as a risk factor though it certainly makes it easier for someone um, to remove information whether that be sensitive IP or trade secrets from an organization very quickly and at a very high level of efficiency that we may have not seen 25 years ago when it was strictly paper. Um, at the same time, I think that's an advantage for some of us who are trying to work uh, compliance and making sure that the organizations are are free of, of insider threats or other threats to the IP, and that is that some of that technology also becomes a window into uh, some of the employees' activities. Um, They are more willing to post things on social media, more willing to post things in a a public venue that may actually give you uh, some indication of that that insider risk. So there really is, I think, some benefits and some uh, some costs to that, but it's technology in the workplace is certainly where we're all embracing at this point. Yeah, and with respect to technology, are there certain steps that uh, companies should be taking with respect to that technology to safeguard? Are there any, like, for example, um, technical things they should be doing or things to watch out for? Well, just looking at some of the more recent cases that have been in the media, um, even in the last 12 months, Ken, I one of the things that has really jumped out is the importance of screening um, personal email communication uh, coming in and out of uh, official company platforms, you know, and I think the most basic thing that, that you see sometimes is the forwarding of company information from a company email account to a personal email account. 
Um, there is there are certainly a lot of technologies available in that area um, mm -hmm. in terms of the cybersecurity aspect, um, and some of those things need to be need to be used. Uh, what's interesting, uh, certainly in this case, is that that's something that can be done um, on an ongoing basis. It's not something that's intrusive to the employees or the employer. Uh, but those are really some of the most basic steps, and I think it's it's certainly surprising as you watch these uh, theft of trade secret cases, whether they're criminal or civil, how oftentimes some of these most basic themes come out of those circumstances. Interesting. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about the topic of balancing IP asset protection with business growth. Um, you've noted some concerns related to M&As in our growing uh, global economy. What should rights holders uh, consider when expanding their businesses while also keeping an eye on protections with respect to their valuable IP? Uh, it's a great question. Um, it is something that I think the, the number one consideration here is, frankly, it has to be considered. It has to be considered all the time. There is a trade-off um, in terms of of balancing the business growth versus the risk to IP. Um, of those circumstances that seem to turn into some type of theft of trade secret or trade secret misappropriation, it, it oftentimes uh, just simply comes down to uh, the, the advantage of the growth uh, was, was something that made them overlook uh, a risk to their most sensitive IP or their or their trade secrets, mm -hmm. and that in and of itself is something that really has to be an ongoing process. Um, as these uh, these organizations are looking to to capture additional market share, or trying to capture some additional expertise through some new technology or new ability in terms of what they're trying trying to do, regardless of what business sector it is. Um, they should always consider on an ongoing basis uh, really kind of figuring out what that, that delicate balance is, of making sure that they're achieving some of their long-term business growth goals, but also making sure that they're not inviting um, an unnecessary risk to their most sensitive IP um, and overlooking especially something that can turn into an insider threat. Sure. And, you know, following up on that point, I'd like to look at the, the issue of what I what we call the IP environment in which a company operates. Could you give me a little bit of, of your insight as to things to be aware of or various issues that come up um, with respect to that point in connection with uh, theft of trade secrets? Sure. When we, when we talk about IP environment, I'm thinking really along two lines. Uh, one of them is, is the, the legal aspects, the legal venue in which you're operating, uh, both your home venue and also maybe another country that you're operating in. Um, it's extremely important, even in the most basic sense, to know what those requirements are, what the legal guidelines are. Um, are you is your organization operating in a in a, a country that for instance maybe the the legal IP protections really aren't what they are in, in the United States or in another country that you do more business with um, doing a, a an ongoing evaluation of what those those protections are those legal protections is an extremely important thing um, if nothing else because when something happens, and you proceed to some legal action, 
uh, you have to really understand what you're up against. There may not be the protections that you think, and that, that's very important. I think that's something that that uh, global business today does a better job of trying to make sure that they're, they are minding uh, some of those issues and making sure that, that they know what the, uh, the legal issues are in a particular venue. But the other side of it also comes down to a perception. And so the IP environment can also have to do with really just the mere perception and uh, very much, very similar to some of the legal aspects. Um, you know, there are some tr traditional kind of cultural issues in one company versus, or one country versus another. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and some of that is, is frequently discussed um, in terms of kind of the overall national perspective of, of IP rights and, and the respect for them and uh, trying to make sure that that we're maintaining uh, the, the type of IP environment we like. Um, that can certainly be country-based and, and cultural, but it can also exist within the company itself. And one of the things that an organization wants to watch for is, for instance, in a merger and acquisition and, and bringing in another partner or just partnering with another organization, um, one would really want to look very closely at the, the perception of IP within an organization. Um, it may come down to something as simple as, as the type of training that another organization that you're partnering with um, has or doesn't have in terms of IP. How do they view IP? Um, a colleague and I recently co-authored an article for the, the Michigan State Brand Protection Professional and um, and the uh, the offender uh, in the in the case that was examined uh, referred to um, uh, some of the intellectual property as cabbage, meaning that it was really kind of worthless. And those are the kinds of perception issues that should be considered um, as you're trying to protect your own valuable IP or your trade secrets. Very interesting, Michael. Um I note that you're uh, involved with the ACAP Center. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what you've done with them? Uh, the Michigan State uh, Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection it was really one of the first academic institutions uh, that supports the efforts of law enforcement, um, academia, and, and industry in combating um, the counterfeiting crime problem. I, I think in, in terms of what I see on a regular basis as a practitioner of this that's very valuable to me is some of the great research that comes out of the university uh, that is directed at the, uh, the counterfeiting crime problem. Uh, but really it's a, a great support network for, again, for academia, law enforcement, and industry in general for for the types of resources, not only for sharing information through things like the, the Brand Protection Professional uh, Journal, uh, where you can learn about all kinds of things related to product counterfeiting, uh, but even just some of the more uh, informal events and some of the information sharing that goes on between law enforcement and industry, I think, is invaluable. And the university does a, a fantastic job in terms of facilitating that. Um, one question with respect to going back to trade secret theft, and that is if you're a company and you find out, you know, your valuable trade 
secrets have been stolen. What would be some of the immediate things that the company should do uh, in reaction to that finding? I That's a, a really nice question, Ken. I think one of the things that uh, I've been most surprised at over the years is that there have been times when an organization didn't realize that they they lost what is considered a trade secret until it was already gone. Mm-hmm. And and I think that early identification of those those types of assets is extremely important. There's a lot of interesting work going on today in terms of managing those trade secret assets. Um, that is something that is is vital in terms of preparation. You don't want to to have to face this issue. Uh, when it's already afoot and already in someone else's hands. Um, in terms of what, what really can be done about it, if you've really done what needs to be done in terms of protecting that trade secret and, and making sure that it qualifies as such, and that is, is, is some early law enforcement intervention if it's actually a criminal act. Um, and now there, there are certainly a lot of, of civil trade secret litigation issues out there, uh, probably more so than certainly the criminal side, but early intervention is is very important, and I think that's one of the the key roles of federal law enforcement when it comes to trade secret theft is is being into that circumstance as early as possible to try to recover the information. And uh, looking at some of the, the cases that have come out even in the media in the last few years, you can see that being the case where they're trying to recover the information as quickly as possible before it's sent off to a, another nation state or an organization outside the United States. So I think the the early detection of that and the reporting of it and, and trying to address it investigatively, whether it's on the civil side or on the criminal side, I think is one of the very most important steps to, to consider when you actually lose a trade secret. Well, Michael, we have to wrap up for today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to join us here on IP Fridays. Uh, thanks again for your contributions. Great. Thank you again. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only 
and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. Thank you.